This is Robert Capuccio. Welcome to Transformation Unplugged, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to connect you with some of the world's leading experts in health, fitness, and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. To be unplugged means deciding to be unrestrained by the beliefs, expectation, and assumption of others. To make the declaration that only you can determine for yourself what the best version of you looks like based on what you authentically want and value most. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is a very good friend as well as colleague of mine, Craig Hopper. This guy is extraordinary. I know that by the time you're done listening to this podcast, you're going to have a lot of practical takeaways that you can use immediately to start making changes in the most important areas in your life. But Craig Hopper did start out so extraordinary. As a matter of fact, when he was younger, he struggled with weight and self-esteem. In fact, he was the most overweight kid in his class. But then through making a series of subtle changes to his mindset and behaviors, he became one of Australia's leading presenters, writers, and educators in areas such as health, high performance, resilience, self-management, leadership, corporate change, communication, stress management, addiction, and personal transformation. Craig's been an integral part of the Australian health and fitness industry since 1982. And since that time, he's worked as an exercise scientist. He's been a corporate speaker, consultant, university lecturer, AFL conditioning coach, radio host, TV presenter, writer, and successful business owner. Back in 1990, Craig established Harper's Personal Training, which evolved into one of the most successful businesses of its kind and inhabited the Australian fitness landscape for almost a quarter of a century. In fact, that's how I came to know Craig Harper, because I was working with a company that sought out some of the most highly effective people in health and fitness. And... Craig Harper was doing things out of Australia that very few to probably nobody else at that time was actually doing. So we had to get connected and we've had a strong friendship ever since. I know you're going to get a lot out of this. Thanks for listening. Enjoy it. Craig Harper. Bobby Capuccio. What is up? Hey, thanks for being here, Craig. It's an honor. Well, I don't know about that. Let's not be ridiculous. But thanks, mate. It's nice to chat to you, as always. No, I'm just elevating people's expectations to put a lot of pressure on you. Yeah, I know no, you work just... better under pressure when you're nervous. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah perfect. That's what the dude with no self-esteem needs, is you just keeping on the pressure. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll roll up my sleeves and I'll have a crack. All right. So, you know, we've been friends for a long time and uh, we've also we've also done quite a bit of work together. So a little over a year ago, we taught together in uh, your camp in Melbourne, Australia. That was a really good time. And when I was in the back listening to what you were saying, yeah, you, you, you had this analogy and it struck me. I loved it. I love the simplicity of it, but I love the power of it as well. And I just want you to go into that a little bit. Talk to us about the hill. 
Yeah, so I guess the hill is a metaphor for, you know, dealing with tough things in life. But the story that I tell is is about how a guy comes to me, that the quick version is a guy comes to me and says, Craig, I'm ready to do what's ever required to get in shape. I've stopped and started and I'm then going around in circles and I'm just over it. You know, I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and do the work. And so I talk to him about this idea of he lives just down the road from a hill and I talk to him about the idea of just walking down to the hill every day the hill is about a kilometre high, so that's about, or it's bottom to top, about a kilometre, which is about 0.6 of a mile. And I say, all I want you to do is get up the hill, down the hill every day, that's it. And, you know, the dude's like 40 kilos, what's that, maybe 88 pounds overweight. And he just goes through this process where he starts walking the hill every day and at first he's almost crawling, he's stopping, he's starting. His fitness is a minus five out of ten. The the pain factor is an eleven out of ten. The enjoyment factor is a zero, and so on. And so physically, mentally, emotionally, he hates the process. There's nothing but discomfort and pain. And so I won't give you the whole story, but what happens over the course of about eight months is he loses all the weight. Um, his body changes. His mindset changes. His thinking. His emotional state changes. And in the middle of all of that, you know, he becomes a better dad, a better boss, a better leader, a better manager. His, his ability to connect and relate with people, his ability to resolve conflict and be more creative and have better energy and get in and out of the car with less pain and play with his kids. Everything transforms. And we talk about, we talk about how the same guy doing the same thing getting up a hill, getting downhill every day, just committing, completely rolling up his sleeves and committing to a process which is not sexy, not fun, not quick, not comfortable, not glamorous, but nonetheless effective, uh, in the middle of that there's a massive personal shift. And, and I guess the kind of metaphor is, you know, the hill, the hill, we all have a hill and it might be a literal hill or the hill might be addiction or the hill might be finance, the hill might be our career, the hill might be, you know, our overthinking, anxiety-ridden mindset. Um, it can be a range of things, but but at the end, I ask the audience, you know, whether or not, um, you know, whether or not he has changed or the hill has changed, because now the experience is is completely different. So eight months down the track, now he associates joy and fun and pleasure and transformation and positivity with the hill, and not only cognitively, but he has a different emotional relationship with and his body is totally different physiologically. And so what we see is an internal and external shift based on a guy doing the same thing. And so the hill is the same, but when the individual is different around that hill, then their literal reality has changed. Their experiential reality has changed. And, and I think, you know, and you and I have spoken many times about this, and it's just that the truth is that sometimes the things that we need to do to create real change in our world and whether or not that's financial, professional, personal, physiological, sociological, emotional, whatever. It, it, it's just work and it's not fun, quick, easy or sexy. And the truth is that, you know, mm. so much we are focused on the hack, we are focused on the two-minute abs, we are focused on the magic pill, the silver bullet. You know, nobody, everybody wants a 9 out of 10 result with a 2 out of 10 effort. Not everybody but a lot of people. And so one of my... One of my challenges as a coach and speaker and educator and author and all of those things is to often present a message that is, is hard to sell and that is that 
it might take you quite a while. It might be painful. It might not be popular. It might not be familiar. It might not be easy, but the outcome is worth it if you're prepared to do what most people want, you know. And so mm-hmm. I think when people hear that story in its totality and they go on that ride with that guy who's walking up and down and eventually jogging and eventually running up and down that hill and then in the, the multitude of layers of change that happen within and without for that dude, um, they kind of see themselves in that. And so I think the message is for us to figure out, well, what's my hill? What am I avoiding? You know, what's the thing that I'm not doing that I know that I should be doing? You know, we all have that. I I think whether that is right explicitly in the forefront of our minds or implicitly, we kind of get this sense that, yeah, I kind of know what to do because you hear that a lot. I don't know exactly what to do. And I only had knowledge. But, you know, if knowledge by itself was a solution to a problem, nobody would smoke because there's nowhere in the world you can go where there's not a warning label on cigarettes. And they're pretty clear. I mean, you know, in, in Australia, they're a lot more clear than most places. You have yeah. a picture of, you know, someone's face rotting off from oral cancer. Doesn't leave a lot of room for misinterpretation. Or the picture of the skeleton smoking a cigarette. Not a lot of people look at that and go, wait, are they trying to say that smoking will make me look thinner? So I think <laughs> that's pretty clear. But, but there's a lot of initial inertia that you have to overcome to take those first steps going up that hill because you're probably not even going to make it all the way up the hill the first time. You might just make it halfway up. It's going to suck. And yeah, it, correct. You know, we talk about Malcolm Gladwell was the first to popularize the research of the 10,000 hour rule. And I think, you know, it's become cliche in our society now because so many people talk about the 10,000 hours, but I think very few people understand what is meant by that 10,000 hour rule. It's actually a lot more intricate and more difficult than just repeating the same behaviors for 10,000 hours. That's not going to bring about very much improvement at all. So if you don't mind, what I want to do is just unpack what it takes to conquer the proverbial hill. And one of the things that stood out in this, because a lot of people are listening to this and go, yeah, You know, you know what you want. You wake up every day, you discipline yourself and you keep doing it and doing it and doing it until that hill is not something you do. It's a reflection of who innately you are. And they'd be right. That's an element of it. But one thing that stood out is you didn't tell this guy, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write you the perfect exercise program. And then I'm going to write you an exact dietary program. And you're going to follow this exactly like every single meal and I'm going to remove all the guesswork and you're going to comply with it because I guess statistically we know one that doesn't work. If the perfect human diet has come out, somebody's keeping it very well hidden, but it's that one thing you had him do, which was the hill and it wasn't 10 things to do. And you talked about the transformation because he didn't just, physically conquer the hill there was an emotional internal shift what do you think is one of the most important internal shifts that people need to make but very often don't yeah so i would you know i'm probably going to say a lot of things you've heard me say a thousand times so excuse that but for people who don't know me haven't heard me oh this isn't about me craig that's true so i mean it's the, the biggest thing we need to get our head around is that the problem is not your body. The problem isn't your body. Your body is the consequence of other stuff. Now, 
let's put aside genetic anomalies and 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 difficult to manage medical problems. But I'm talking about the the average person who is out of shape, whatever we want to, however we want to define that, but not in their best physical condition based on their values and what they'd like to look, feel and function like. Most people who are out of shape are out of shape as a byproduct of their choices and behaviours, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I can manage me, when I can manage me, not my body, because my body's not me, when I can manage me, then the byproduct is my body will be in a better place. And so... Uh, as you and I have spoken about many times, I, I spoke recently in Melbourne at a thing called Phylex two weeks ago, which is, um, you know, kind of the fitness industry, uh, high watermark for education for trainers and, uh, and all of that stuff. And I, I said to them, essentially, we need to get better at working with people because we're, we're pretty good at bodies. We're pretty good at anatomy and physiology and biomechanics and functional movement and nutrition and micros and macros, but we're terrible with understanding human behaviour. Now, mm -hmm. of course, we're not psychologists necessarily, but, you know, when I'm talking to uh, uh, somebody who has a history of being overweight or in and out of shape or fit and unfit, or uh, destructive eating behaviours or terrible decision-making, when I'm talking to that person, I'm not talking to a tricep or bicep or, or a quad or an elbow or a, you know, bloody glenohumeral joint. I'm talking to, I'm talking to a multidimensional psychological, sociological, emotional, spiritual creature who lives in a body. I'm talking to ego, attitude, beliefs, values, fears, experience, history. That's who I'm talking to. That's who I'm talking with. And I need to be able to connect with that person to help that person navigate the body stuff, yeah? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so, so and, and you and I know, I can say to some, some guy or girl, okay, in a hypothetical world, here's the perfect diet, here's the perfect program, here's the key to the gym. In fact, you can have the gym. Here's $5 million worth of equipment. Here's every resource you will ever need on a practical level now, the chances of that person creating, inhabiting and maintaining their best body, still slim because mm -hmm. it's not about what we know, what we have, what we understand or what we have available at our fingertips. All of those things matter and all of those things are part of the process. But if in the middle of the ideal situation, circumstance and set of resources, we have a person, an individual, a human who does not know how to manage themselves who does not know how to manage their mind or their emotions or their decisions or their behaviours, in the middle of everything else that is ideal, there will always be a less than ideal outcome. And we focus way too much in the fitness and health and wellness space about the stuff that isn't always, um, for me, the most important stuff. And, and, of course, I'm not downplaying the importance of exercise and Anatomy and physiology and nutrition, of course, all of that stuff matters. Yeah, but you can't, you can't take the human being out of the human body, though. Of course. And this is the thing we need to... And, and because... It, how honest can I be? Can I be brutally honest? That's what I we're here for. Yeah, it's, this I is, this is like, Craig Unplugged. Yeah, so I feel like there are a lot of people who work in the fitness space, especially, who don't have their own shit together. Now, if you can't manage you... How the fuck can you help other people manage themselves optimally or get the most out of themselves? So mm -hmm. I've, I've always thought, you know, for me, and there were times in my journey where I was a fraud. There were times in my journey where I wasn't walking the talk. 
And there were times in my journey where basically I was telling people to do one thing and I was doing another for a range of reasons because I was going through a bad time or I was just weak or I was undisciplined or I was driven by ego or something. But until I really, and, and I mean this as a coach now on a multidimensional level in terms of my business and my life and my values and my behaviours and until I started to get myself in the right place and be aligned, Craig Harper aligned with what he talks about and teaches and shares, which thankfully has been for a fair while now, but it wasn't always the case, then I, I was never going to be the best coach. I was never going to be the re- best role model. I was never going to be the best, you know, um, supporter and educator of people. So I believe, you know, from a, from a coaching perspective, before you try to impact anyone else's life, now, now we're not talking about being perfect. We're just talking about coming from a place of alignment, coming from a place of authenticity. And then, you know, when I'm walking the talk, when people can see that how I live and what I do and how I communicate and how I behave and how I manage my body and my food and my relationships and my business and brand and money and time and energy, when they can see that that, is a reflection of what comes out of my mouth, then not only am I in alignment, but then I've got respect of people. And if you don't have respect of people as a coach, good luck trying to have a successful career or help people. You know, there, there are a lot of coaches listening to this and there are a lot of trainers and there are also a, a lot of people who are just interested in making changes in their life so that they can make changes in their life, if that makes any sense. Sure. What do you What do you think is one of the major barriers? Like, are, are people just like lazy? I mean, because when you look at the stats, you know, we've got a brand new year coming up. You know, before you even know it, New Year's will be here in Scranton University back in 2015. They took a look at okay, everyone who sets a New Year's resolution around health and fitness, how many of those people actually even keep the resolution? I'm not saying succeed in their goals, I'm saying just stick with their resolution. And it's about 8%. So that means like over 90% of the people, 92%. Don't even keep the commitments they make. And as we know, those people fall off very early. Like if you try to get into the gym on January 5th, you can't even get in there. But, you know, January 25th, you can fire a cannon across the room and not kill anybody. (laughs) That's that's, that's so true, dude. No, that's not even – I mean, that's funny, but it's funny because it's – do we swear on this podcast? It's probably too late to ask that question. We do now. Okay. Uh, NC-17. It's fucking fucking true. It's it's true. I mean, you and I have worked in, I owned gyms for 25 years. And and part of the answer to that, there's no single answer, but I'm going to give you a couple of things that I just jotted down while you were talking. So one is, you know, the dichotomy is that we human beings love comfort. We love comfort. We love quick, easy, fast, convenient. We love painless. But the, the change process at least for a while, is uncomfortable. So we're kind of at a T-intersection. You know, we're pulled up to a a T-intersection. We can turn left and go back to comfort and familiarity or we can go the road less travelled and turn right and go, well, look, this is going to suck for a while because I'm unfit and I'm overweight and I'm addicted to junk food and soda and blah, 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 blah. So for a while this is going to suck. But that's okay. So I turn right because I'm, I realise that I need to step into the discomfort to get into the good stuff because I'm not going to accidentally end up with a fit, lean, healthy, amazing body, health state, performance level. That's not going to just accidentally. Fall. So the first thing is discomfort. The second th- thing is that, 
you know, when we talk about transformation or New Year's resolutions, um, we're talking about a theoretical thing. It's just an idea, a theoretical construct. And the idea of getting in shape is not the reality of the process. And it's very easy to, to intend, to talk, to plan, to wish, to want, you know, but, but the, the practical reality of stepping into the doing, as you said, and stay in the doing, stay in the doing, Mm-hmm. The challenge and then the third thing that popped into mind, which you've heard me babble on about for 30 years, is just the reality that the emotional state of motivation, the excitement, the inner, the inner momentum, the enthusiasm, call it whatever you want, the I'm in the zone state is not permanent. And, and some yeah. people, that, that state mm-hmm. of motivation lasts till the 5th of January, some people last to the 25th, you know. But, but the challenge for us as people who say, now, whether or not we're coaches trying to change us or helping people create transformation on planet them, the challenge for us, the, que- the ever-present question is, how do I stay effective and proactive and productive, in other words, doing what needs to be done to get where I want to go when I can't be bothered? When I'm in that emotional or motivational trough, how do I keep doing what most people would stop doing? Because if you... I think people doing- can relate to that. Yeah, if you can keep doing what you need to do when most people are at that stage where, you know, generally emotion drives behaviour. Um, and so if your emotion is, I can't be bothered, I don't want to do this, I can't be stuffed, this is not fun anymore. It, on a cognitive level, of course I want to lean a lighter body, but this is just, this sucks. And by the way, Bobby's going out tonight and invite, he's invited me for beer and tacos, so I'm off and I'll start Monday. And then we wake up and we're 50. And, and this is the Groundhog Day behaviour that many Australians, Americans, etc., live in. They live in this perpetual um, circular behaviour of in the zone, out of the zone, stopping, starting, because we haven't hardwired the, the, uh, the relative or relevant behaviours, we haven't hardwired them into our subconscious. They are not part of our normal operating system. And so the challenge for us is to say, all right, well, in terms of, uh, whether or not it's for us personally or whether our clients, we say, well, what do I want to do, be, create, change, accomplish? What What's that stuff now? What are the behaviours that support that, right? And then how do I hardwire that stuff into my normal mm-hmm. operating system? So this is now my new normal. This is me. So you and I, you've been training for 30 years. I've been training for 35 years because I'm older than you, but... I don't you need are. to get motivated. I don't, <laughs> dude. I'm a dinosaur. I'm a T-Rex of the fitness industry. I don't, but I don't need to get motivated or pumped or focused or disciplined to go to the gym, because for me, it's like having a shower. It's just a thing I do every day. So for me, the biggest issue around training is when will I fit it in today, right? So when that what when that behaviour which used to be a sometimes when I'm motivated behaviour now becomes an all the time because it's part of my normal operating system behaviour, then the need, in inverted commas, to get motivated becomes redundant. Yeah, I was talking about you the other day, as a matter of fact, because you are probably one of the most consistent people on the planet. And I know some pretty consistent individuals, but you know, it, it, if I had to bet a large amount of money on my life on what you're doing at any given day when you're not yeah. on the road at any specific time... I'd be pretty confident in my winnings. So it's what I was talking about in this meeting is the power of community. 
and getting around people where things like exercise, it's not something you go and do. It's truly who you are. It becomes your new normal because when something's normal, it's habitual. It's hardwired. And it's, it's almost harder to not do that thing once it becomes that deeply ingrained as part of you than to go ahead and do that thing. Like if for you, it's probably a lot harder. I know it is for me to miss a day at the gym because of what that does. I mean, I just sustained a major injury and, you know, every day I'm back in the gym because I can't not be. It's so part of who I am. But, you know, a couple of things is when you talk about what are the behaviors I need to initiate and perpetuate in order to do that thing that I've decided to do, that I'm committed to, Craig Hopper quote, you know, it's not about motivation, it's about commitment. I think it's important to go back to that hill and sometimes maybe stack one habit at a time. Because if I start doing 10 things, a couple of things start to happen to me. One, if I miss on one thing, I upchunk that into everything. So it's not like, well, I missed this meal. I failed in totality versus when I'm doing this one thing, I can adapt. I can measure progress a lot more effectively because it's a lot more simplistic. And that one thing, if I start to enjoy it, because I mean, let's, let's be honest, even though you hate that hill, after a while, you get really good at running that hill. What was terrifying now becomes exhilarating. So in the brain, that links up, that expedites a habit. And once I have a habit, Okay, well, now I'm doing the hill. I'm not going to stop doing the hill. But when I get to the top of the hill now, and I'm just, I'm just throwing random stuff out. I'm not suggesting anybody does this. You know, I'm going to do 50 push-ups, maybe not consecutively, maybe in, in sets of 10 or 5. But I'm going to get to that 50. I've now stacked a habit. I took something that was hardwired, and I just added something on top of it. And then if I keep doing stuff like that, eventually I have a ritual and then those rituals start to define me. We create our rituals, then our rituals create us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. Don't. But I, I just want to, I just want to quote again, a, um, a famous philosopher, Craig Harper. Hmm. He said that, <clears throat> you know, and I'm taking this right off of your whiteboard lessons on Instagram. I become the best version of me by helping you become the best version of you. So talk to us about that a little bit, because I think it's very relevant. And I'll tell you why, maybe later on. Uh, okay. So for me, because, because I come from, uh, without boring everyone, you know, I was a fat kid, all that stuff, morbidly obese kid, fattest kid in my school, um, uh, which had a bunch of, you know, I, I wasn't really bullied or anything. I was just a fat kid. My name through school was Jumbo and that was my identity. And so um, this seems like a long-winded way to answer that question, but I grew up with... No, no, this is good. I'm glad you brought that up. Keep going yeah, with this. So, so I grew up with rubbish self-esteem. Uh, my opinion of me was very low. Um, and so uh, for a range of reasons, including those, I became pretty much obsessed with my body and exercise. And I got to the point where... And there's no excuses in here. I take full ownership. But I was, I was pretty self-focused and not in a good way. I was motivated. I, you know, I was still, I think, essentially a good human being. I was helping people. But, um, you know, my entire focus was very external. What I have, what I earn, what I own, what I look like, what I create, 
um, and there wasn't a whole lot of introspection or there wasn't a whole lot of work on the spiritual, emotional, psychological stuff. And, and it's, you know, in the last, I mean, I, I had a bit of a revolution and inner revolution at about 28, 30 where that turned around a fair bit. But, but these days I genuinely understand that when I have a purpose bigger than me, when I have a purpose bigger than the Craig show and my ego and my needs and my agenda, then I genuinely am a better human being. In fact, you know, without neglecting myself while still managing me and working on my stuff, of which there is still much to work on. But when I have a greater focus on, and this sounds like motivational bullshit 101, but this is hand on heart the truth for me. Um, when I serve and when I come from a place of love and when I come from a place of no agenda, I just want to help you, then one, um, I, I am a better person to be around my energy is better my problem. you there yeah you just you, we just broke Sorry, up mate, a little bit. I, I cut out for a minute um when, when i am in that place for me um it works better for others and it works better for me and so you know i always i always encourage the people that i work with while simultaneously working on you having your own goals and plans um at the same time you know, to have something bigger than you so that, that we don't become too, too obsessed, uh, too insular, too insecure and too distracted with what is often the stuff that really doesn't matter so much. I mean, no, very few people, I wouldn't say nobody, but very few people can argue that when you do something kind for somebody else, it feels good. Now, that releases dopamine, right? So that's the neurotransmitter in your brain that says, hey, you know what? I like that. Why don't we do that again? And and a lot of times, dopamine can be our worst enemy. It gets us in a lot of trouble, especially when on holiday in Vegas for some weird reason. But it can also be our best friend and reinforce some of the behaviors that support what we want to do and, and probably more importantly, who and what we ultimately want to become. You know, but, but there's, there's something else for me that takes place. There's so much power in that short, succinct statement of I become the best version of me by helping you become the best version of you. Mm-hmm. Decades ago, Dr. Mimi Silbert, she was working in the, the San Francisco area and she was taking a look at career criminals. These were people yeah. who were in and out of the system. A lot of them came from broken homes. So they, they started out with a tremendous amount of disadvantages, disadvantages most people don't have. Yet, whatever got them started, those triggers were perpetuated and they pretty much stayed in the system indefinitely. And what she noticed is that psychologists were labeling these people and saying, well, you know, they they come in and out of the system because they're psychopaths and sociopaths. And, you know, there's no other answer. He says, well, there's a lot of other answers to that. That's an overgeneralization. And statistically, all of these people who are coming in out of the system being sociopaths and psychopaths, that doesn't even add up. And, and the problem with that is if you get that label, it means there's nothing we can do with you. You know, your brain just does not have those mechanisms for empathy. She said, you know, yeah. I, I wonder what would happen 
if we addressed people at the level of their most fundamental beliefs. So she started interviewing hundreds of these career criminals, if you want to call them that. And what she identified, now this might be a little bit dated, this goes back decades ago, but she identified that there were two primary beliefs that most, if not all, career criminals possessed. And this was at the core of their identity and therefore their behaviors. Number one, look out for number one all the time. I'm the most important person that matters because let's be honest, if you're going to succeed as a criminal, empathy and compassion, really bad attributes to have. Like you're not going to do well. Other criminals will make fun of you. You're just not going to be respected. So that was the first major belief. The second belief was, and this seems like a contradiction, but it was kind of a code of honor. If you do get caught, the one thing you never want to do is ever rat. Nobody respects rat. So, you know, I, I wonder what would happen if we use cognitive dissonance. Now, I'll just define that as the internal duress that, that happens to us when we try to hold two perspectives in our mind at the same time and still kind of like retain that ability to function. So I wonder what would happen if we disrupted these people at their most core fundamental beliefs. So let's say, you know, I was, I was standing in front of the judge for the third time and they said, you know, Bobby, you know, we've warned you twice. This is your third strike. Sorry, but you're going to go away for you know, 20 years. Or she started this program called Delancey Street. And you can go to this program and, you know, you're in this house in San Francisco, wait, house, San Francisco, prison. I'm very interested in this Delancey Street thing. Keep talking, yes. Your Honor. Yes. So yes. you have a lot of leverage up front. And they say, but here's the thing. If you get kicked out of this program for any reason, you go straight to prison for 20 years. Okay. Yeah. So, Let's say I'm in the program and it is my third day and, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty new. Now, on day one and two, people are always asking me, hey, Bobby, how's it going? How you doing? How you adjusting here? Is there anything you need? Well, you know, Craig Hopper comes in and it's his first day in the Delancey Street program. Welcome, by the way. And they put you with me. And now my crew leader tells me, you know, Bobby, never again is anyone going to ask you, how you doing? We're going to ask you how your crew is doing. And Craig, he's your first person. I'm like, I'm here three days. Yeah. You have three times the amount of experience in this place that Craig has. We will judge you by how well he does. So you better look out for him and we're going to keep putting people under you. So now the guy who grew up believing I got to look out for number one, number one is the last person that I can look out for in this environment. I got to look out for everyone else first. That shakes my world. But here's the second thing. If Bobby, if you see anybody violate any one of the rules, I mean, it can be the smallest infraction, like, you know, kind of winking at the guy during lunch hour. So you get an extra, you know, scoop of rice you have to go tell somebody you've got to report that person. And if you don't, you're out. Wow. So now I've got to look out for everyone and be a rat. And after a while, you know, I cognitive dissonance sets in and I either have to think that I am a rat or I have to kind of resolve that inconsistency by reframing and eventually rejecting those original beliefs and maybe saying, you know what, maybe those beliefs weren't right. Maybe they aren't very helpful. After all, look at where they got me. 
And, and what happened, long story short, is Delancey Street has now spread into multiple cities throughout the United States. It has incredible levels of success. Mm. And a lot of these people that start in Delancey Street, they go on to be compassionate, contributing members of society, working as managers of five-star hotels, maitre d's of five-star restaurants. And it's pretty impressive, but it starts to break in those core fundamental beliefs. So when you say, you know, you evolve into the best version of you by helping other people become the best version of them. If you are someone who, let's say, is not lazy, let's say you just don't believe I mean, it's it, why am I going to start on an exercise program if my past history leads me to disbelieve in my ability? It's a waste yeah. of time. But once yeah. I start getting a little bit of success, I go, ah, you know what? I've got this one habit down. You know, Simon up the street, he's not even gotten started. I can help him. And I start helping Simon and focusing on Simon more than, well, that starts contradicting my beliefs. Eventually, it reshapes my beliefs in a subtle but powerful way to where I become the person who I'm behaving as. Because you know, that's the thing, we'll change your beliefs and your behavior will change. But a lot of literature supports, well, actually, change your behaviors and your beliefs will change. Mm -hmm. You know what? Yeah, I love that. That's such a great story, and it's such—I mean, it's—it tells us so many things on so many relatable levels for all of us. But one thing that sprung to mind then uh, was, you know, the fact that, you know, they say that by—you know—I mean, there's different research, but by 35, kind of 90% of who we are and 95% of who we are and how we are and how we think and how we will be—it's kind of locked in and. And I think the other stat, you're better at this stuff than me, but it is that we have, is it around 70,000 thoughts a day at which about 90% are about the, the same thoughts that we had yesterday, you know? And so I think one, one thing that we don't think about is our thinking <laughs> and, you know, that, that, that whole area of metacognition and just having, you know, we're almost opening the door here on self-awareness and consciousness and going deep, but it's, it's kind of like almost that what's the me experience like for other people and is it possible that that internal kind of program that pretty much, you know, my, my thinking, so my beliefs around looking after one, number one, my beliefs around not being a rat, my beliefs around X, Y and Z, they are all hardwired byproducts of my experiences and what I've been taught directly or indirectly and the idea that perhaps there's another way to think or there's another set of beliefs that might serve us better, there's another way of, uh, of looking at that thing, there's another way of analysing the world around us and creating our own inner kind of reality, you know, where we start to think about is, is my... Are the stories that I tell myself the only stories? Are they the best stories for me? Because I can't be a rat. That's a story. And I understand it. I, I've worked in prisons and I've worked with criminals and I've worked with lots of addicts. And that that story I've heard many times. Um, and, and I understand it. And just like you and I have heard many stories about I can't lose weight, I am not athletic, I am not creative. These are all stories that we tell ourselves based on a bunch of variables. But I think the mm -hmm. challenge in, and, and this is for you, me, this is for everyone. Like, it, remember 
to, to all of you guys and girls listening to this right now, remember that the only person who thinks like you 24-7 is you. And, and your version of reality is no one else's. Your version of what's happening in this moment right now is only your version. And so, so to the point that let's say, for example, you know, we've got just a random selection of 10 people listening to you and I right now, Bobby. So we've got 10 people listening and they're all taking notes. One, they'll all be writing different things down. And two, nobody's having the same experience. And so it's possible that someone's listening to this going, this is enlightening. Somebody else is going, this is confusing. Somebody else is going, I'm a bit frustrated. Somebody else is saying, um, I'm inspired. Someone else is going, this is bullshit. These guys are idiots and so on. But it still comes back to how we personally uh, process the world around us. It comes down to and having an awareness of starting to, you know, like as Eckhart Tolle says, you know, being the observer of your thoughts and not just the inhabitant, you know, is, is being aware that thinking happens without your involvement almost. You know, so thinking happens consciously and unconsciously. And, and the notion of starting to almost pick and choose what we emotionally buy into. Um, because if I, as you wrote very recently, don't believe everything you think, if I believed everything I thought, I'd never leave the house. I'd probably never get out of bed because, you know, I'm a lot better these days, but over the years, my opinion of me hasn't been awesome. You know, my, 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 you know, I've, I've always considered myself to be exceptionally mediocre at pretty much everything, but I, I can understand if you're on that way. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. And thanks for the support. Um, but the reality is, you know, it's like, even when I did a gig recently in Hobart, which is Tasmania down the bottom of Australia for all the U S people, but, and it was pretty, you know, like it was a big beautiful, it was a thousand seat auditorium. There were lots of people. It was a good gig. It was, and I've done, you know, thousands of times I've stood in front of audiences now. And for whatever reason, five minutes before I went on, I just had this kind of, well, today could be the day that you fuck it all up. Today could be, you know, where I just had, I'm like, what? That's yeah. a good thought right before you go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, today might be the day where you crash and burn and, like, just all of this, you know, coming from whatever, coming from fear or coming from who knows where. But... So I, so I had these feelings of inadequacy and insecurity. So there's the emotion. But, but the, on a cognitive level, my brain is also going at the same time, yeah, but you've done this a million times mm-hmm. and this is actually your job and you're pretty good at this. You're not the best, but you're pretty good at this and you've never crashed and burned, so you're probably not going to today. And so, you know, I think the challenge for us is sometimes to to manage to, to, to allow that, those emotional kind of states, the negative states that come and go to coexist with the knowledge, with the evidence that, well, I'm actually okay. This will yeah. probably actually, and even though I feel a bit insecure, I'm still going to step into this situation or this conversation or this action. Yeah, because, because they just are feelings, aren't they? I mean, there's so much to unpack in what you just said there. I mean, I, I think you just summarized six podcasts. I, I don't know. We, we might even invite you back, but I, I think most people who are a very high level at what they do that I know that are really talented. I mean, not, they think they're talented. I mean, Bertrand Russell said that the problem with the world is that the smartest people 
are so uncertain and stupid people are so absolutely certain. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially you know, what he said, uh, even though Bukowski gets credit for that most of the time. I find that that there is this constant self-honesty and, and brutal self-dissection, but it's managed. It, it doesn't become debilitating because it's measured against reasoning. You know, I, I, you know, I, I know comedians that are absolutely brilliant at what they do, but everything they did in the past no longer matters the next time they get up on stage. It's only this time on stage. And a lot of that comes from respect from the audience. And, you know, they'll get off stage like, you know, my, my friend John, he'll go, how was that? Was that all right? And that, that's not he's not looking for affirmation and that's not feigned humility. He really is always checking against himself. So I, I, I think that comes from a place of integrity. I mean, if you want to break it down, people who are the biggest frauds, never stop and say, Hey, am I a fraud? Because a fraud would never ask that question because I personally don't give a shit. That's what makes me so fraudulent where someone who has a modicum of humility and self-honesty will. And, uh, you know, you know, Chuck Wolf, the, the speaker yeah, in the yeah. fitness industry. Yeah, many. Yeah, we, we were touring Australia together years ago, and I was in the back room with his wife. And you know, he's one of my favorite speakers, but I heard him do the same speech. Like, I don't know, it was like his sixth time. So I was kind of talking to her. And she was a stage performer. She said something really brilliant to me when I asked, well, what is the key? What's the, what makes someone nearly good on stage versus captivating. And she said, well, it's this internal place of having this beautiful, deep level of humility and an unrelenting ego in the same persona. You know, and and I I know we're kind of tangenting because what you said in the beginning about, I don't know exactly how many thoughts we have a day, but I, I know they are pretty much repetitive, which is, you know, I think every other day because it's redundant otherwise. So, but, but those thoughts, you know, what dictates our thoughts? And a, and a lot of that, if you, if you trace it, it, it's, it's our emotions and it's also our beliefs and those are intertwined. So we have an experience and, you know, we interpret that. Well, what does this mean? You know, like this person, uh, this person looked at me, you know, across the table and they might've been glancing at my, oh, they disrespected me or they don't like me or, you know, it must be because, you know, I'm really bad at meetings and that really stinks. So I tell myself this story and, you know, it's probably fictitious. Mm -hmm. And then I develop a belief around this. And then every time it happens, because now I'm a little bit more aware of it, I start to selectively, you know, through a confirmation bias, notice the same situations and Uh, it reinforces, reinforces that belief. And that belief hurts because there's a biochemical reaction to it. And those biochemicals facilitate the formation of neural pathways and the deeper and more reinforced, the more I have that thought, the stronger those pathways get and the lower the threshold to activate them. You know, so, you know, you can be sitting in a meeting and nothing really happens and it doesn't take much for you to go into panic mode or, or, or get anxiety over something that you think is happening, but it may or may not be happening. So I, I, I think what's interesting is if somebody's listening to this right now, you know, sometimes because that is an emotional response and the more emotional we get, the less capacity for reason we have 
And a lot of times interjecting a question in that space between stimulus and response can help. And just saying something to the effect of what, let, let's say the belief is, you know, nobody respects me, you know, or, uh, or it's like, I'm not disciplined. First question is, well, how do you know? You know, how do you know that's true? And the second question is, well, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence to support that? And where's the evidence to contradict that? Because if, if you ask that question and direct your focus and, and you're in a, in a level of honesty, you have moments in your life where whatever you're feeling, you can find validation for that. There's evidence, but there's also evidence to contradict it. And the next question is, well, why do I choose the representation that makes me feel bad versus the one that helps me do what I need to do that's constructive? And what would happen? What would happen if I just decided, you know what, I'm going to let that go and I'm going to act as if the opposite were true. What would occur? And go ahead and act on that behavior. And that, that could be a micro-coaching strategy that might help people spin out of that continual automatic negative thought loop. Yeah. Look, so the thing is that we're all a bit broken. We're all a bit amazing. You know, we're all a bit dysfunctional. We're all a bit enlightened. We're all a bit ignorant. Yeah. You know, we've all got faults and flaws. But in the middle of all of that, what still matters today is what I do. You know, I can sit around and wax lyrical about all of my shortcomings, but I've still got to, you know, get on, get on the phone in Australia and have a chat to you and do these things that I do as do you and still, you know, show up, show up. I, I don't have self. time to ruminate on my shortcomings. It's like, who's got yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing? But, it, but it's, it's like people go, oh, I'm this and I'm that and I'm that and I'm not that and I go, okay, cool. Um, so what are you going to do today? They're like, what? I go, yeah, okay, so you've got problems, you know, you're a bit broken, you're a bit, yeah, fantastic. Welcome to the fucking human club. Uh, what are you going to do? Like th this, is the, this is the normal human condition of the, that you've got fears and foibles and shortcomings and issues and challenges and dysfunctions and, you know, <clears throat> and... Some people love to ruminate in that because really what they want is self-pity or what, they, what they're doing is self-pity or what they want from other people is pity or a rub on the back or a little bit of... And then, then we wake up and we're five years down the track and we're still having the same inner dialogue about the same shit and actually doing nothing to change. And, you know, the, the, it's okay. It, it's okay. Even, you know, I, I, um, I did a gig last weekend in uh, Canberra, which is the capital in Australia in a place called the Australian Capital Territory and it was an open to the public workshop and it was three hours. We had a few hundred people and um, it was at the Australian Institute of Sport, which is a lovely facility, and um, I, I walked out and I said to Melissa, who's my business partner, I'm, uh, you know, I just wanted, because uh, I do a lot of the same stuff, right? I said I just don't want to, I didn't take any notes, no slides, no PowerPoint, no video, no notes, no nothing. And I said, um, I'm just going to see what happens today. And I walked out and I said to everyone, so I've got no presentation. Now, this is at the start of a three-hour workshop that they've all paid to be at. And, and what I did was I said, this is what I want to do. I want to have a three-on-one, a 300-on-one interactive conversation. And so I just started with the audience and I said, so you've all come for a reason. So 
what's the reason? And I'd just point people out and they'd go, oh, because, you know, I don't know what I want to be doing in a year from now. I'm like, I'm pretty motivated, but I like clarity. So I'd write that on my whiteboard. As you know, I'm a whiteboard person. Someone else would go, I need to lose 30 kilos, but I've done it 16 times and regained it 17. Then someone else would go, I'm shit house at managing money and something, you know, and whatever, you know, or I, you know, I just don't know how to stay focused and disciplined or whatever it is. And then, so I would just write up all of these things on the whiteboard and in the moment, just have this interactive conversation. So essentially a 300 online coaching session for three hours. And in the middle of all of that, I said, by the way, as long as you, as long as it's relevant, ask me a question anytime. And in the middle of that, I told them about as much as I could in, in that space in with what was available in terms of time and what was relevant. I told them about all of my issues, you know, like, uh, and, and the fact that I, I tell people, look, I still have food issues. I manage my food pretty well, but I'm a little bit like an addict in that if I open the mm-hmm. cheesecake door, I may not come back for a week, you know, but it, and there's certain things about me that I know they're not logical. They're not necessarily, um, are responsible, but I know how I'm wired. So I need to figure out the personal blueprint to manage me. And I've done that pretty well. But whoever stands in front of you at whatever workshop, seminar, conference, that person probably has as many issues as you. They're just managing perhaps a little bit better than you are at this point in time. And when you, when you, if, even if, you know, they stand, they sit there and, and, you know, my, somebody might read my bio and Craig's written books and he's, you know, television and radio and done this and that. And it sounds amazing. And then you stand in front of them and you go, by the way, I'm pretty fucked up at times as well. And I still lose my temper and I still do dumb shit and I still make bad decisions. And I still, then all of a sudden you create a level of connection with people. And, and I think trainers and coaches can do this as well, not just in front of a hundred people, but in front of one where you go, I'm kind of like you. But what I've done is I've, I've figured out a system that for me works with all of my issues works pretty well. And I think another important thing with all of this kind of exploration of the human condition, be it psychological, emotional, sociological, creative, physiological, spiritual, whatever it is, is to, is to underline the fact that there is no one fucking program. There is no three-step process. There is no, oh, this works for Bobby, therefore it works for Craig, therefore it works for John, therefore it works for Sally. Absolutely. Right? So what we are trying to do, and this is what I, you know, even me, I'm an exercise scientist. I've written tens of thousands of exercise programs. But whenever I sit and talk to somebody, it's still an educated guess. I'm still giving them my best guess with my knowledge and my experience because I do not know what the outcome will be. I have a fair idea what it will be, but there are just way too many variables for me to have certainty. And so the the challenge for everyone listening to this is to pay attention to Bobby or I or whoever you're listening to at a given time, see what resonates and then take that for a test drive and then maybe that will become your truth as well. Or maybe that will become something that serves you. But this notion of gurus who have the 10 steps for everybody annoys the shit out of me because it just isn't true. It's just, you know, when somebody's got some kind of guaranteed process and we're talking about a a population of people that are different, different genetics, different minds, different backgrounds, different emotional wiring, different understanding, different education, different, yeah, we've got two arms and legs mostly with respect, 
But what we're talking about is multidimensional creatures. So there is no global universal three-step plan for virtually anything. And that's why, you know, this is all, whether or not we're talking about our body, our mind, our career, our money, our PT career, our coaching career, our marriage, our relationships, this is all about how do I manage me? How do I, mm-hmm. I self-manage in the middle of everything? How do I step into this state of equanimity? How do I be the calm in the chaos? How do I yeah. control my world? Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because so much of the, and I'm, I'm using this word because I can't think of another, of the interventions or the strategic approaches to change are very prescriptive and it's like, well, if you didn't get results, you're just not following the program where there's a whole inner game that's just not being played. Or, well, there is an inner game being played, but it's not being played in a way that scores you points in the way that you define a win for yourself. So, Craig, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. It's always a pleasure doing this with you. Where can we find more Craig Harper? Well, everyone can just drop over to my house. So I'll just <laughs> open the door. To, no. Uh, so Some people is, actually do that. That's a funny story. But anyway, uh, we won't get into uh, that here. <laughs> the, um, so my website is one word, craigharper.net. craigharper.net. My um, Facebook is just Craig Harper. There's a, there's a business page and a private page. You can follow me on both. Uh, whiteboard lessons is um, my Instagram. So one word, whiteboard lessons. And I guess in terms of if people want to get some free stuff, just my website, there's lots of articles and lots of, uh, lots of whiteboard posts and also lots of videos and interviews and podcasts. Oh, the other thing too is, um, which is not as good as this podcast that we're now on, but the oh, clearly. Project. The You Project is my um, podcast. So after you've listened to all the ones with Bobby and your board, go to The You Project and have a listen as well. (laughs) Thanks, Craig. Take care, mate. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Craig Harper. Tim Galloway. The legendary coach said that coaching is the art of creating the environment through conversation and a way of being that facilitates the process by which a person can move toward desired goals in a fulfilling manner. We believe that coaching is a powerfully effective medium because it helps you facilitate the changes in behavior that facilitate the changes in your brain that support the changes that you most want to make in your life. Our affiliate partner for this podcast is Coached, C-O-A-C-H-D. If you go to their website or if you download their free app and choose to sign up with one of their world-class coaches, they are offering all listeners of this podcast a 20% discount. Just use the code Transformation Unplugged, one word, to get started. See you on the next episode.